0: Welcome to Fixated, the fixed income podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Moran, Editorial Director of Fixed Income News Australia. Join me every week as I talk about the latest news, views and education in fixed income investment. I'll be joined by industry experts from Australia and across the globe. Welcome. This morning we have Nick Bishop, who is founder of Bishop & Fang, a boutique capital advisory business. Good morning, Nick. Morning. Delighted to have you here this morning. Now, Nick uh, previously was um, Head of Corporate Credit at Gresham Partners and also Head of Fixed Income with Aberdeen Standard Investments. And he has a long history in uh, fixed income. Now, Nick, um, what we're hoping to talk to you about today is interest rates and um, if you think they're going to stay low for the foreseeable future and how you think central banks might be forced to make a move before they said they were going to.
1: Sure, no problem. Um look, I think um it's an interesting time at the moment not only in Australia but globally because we have you know, we've come through a pretty exceptional year with um you know, a lot of turmoil introduced by the pandemic. But really from a markets perspective as opposed to a, a sort of a human movement and a, a macro perspective, from a markets perspective pretty short lived that turmoil. We had March and April which were pretty miserable for all risk assets really and we saw a, a you know a pretty pretty strong rally in bond yields globally but after then um i would argue it's been a golden period for risk assets uh, equities uh, were, you know came back to all time highs credit spreads reached pretty much all time lows depends on which market you look at uh, and obviously there's compositional problems that make that a difficult comparison but pretty um, stunning response i think from risk assets to to what governments and central banks did in the wake of the uh, the pandemic. Now, I can absolutely understand why um, policymakers uh, responded as they did. It was an extremely uncertain time. We had you know, rapid spread of viruses, uh, lockdowns around the globe, which really restricted human movement, had a huge impact on GDP. And when we saw double digit drops in GDP, quarter on quarter, which is absolutely exceptional there, the UK particularly, Um, was was very, very severely affected. So I can understand why central banks and policymakers really rushed to support uh, the macro, uh, uh, you know, not only on an individual level, but also on a corporate level as well. So we've had exceptional stimulus put in place to avoid what could have been very, very, um, you know, damaging downside risk but really i think the case for sustaining that degree of support now is 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 waning very quickly um you know we've got huge stimulus measures in place in in places like the us even in australia we've had as a percentage of gdp we've had the largest peacetime stimulus injected into the economy as a consequence of covid and that's you know job keeper job seeker it's uh, you know it's uh, it's infrastructure spend it was tax breaks You know, and that combination is really quite powerful. So what we're seeing around the globe is a very sharp bounce in unemployment It's coming. It's racing straight back down again. We've had a sharp bounce in consumer sentiment, in forward looking PMIs. They're all looking very strong and upstream inflation uh, indicators have built. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be filtering down to the the very narrow definition that central banks use for for CPI, but I think the risks are tilted in that direction. And, and given the tailwind we've got behind um, uh, uh, economies now and the exceptionally low borrowing costs for governments, corporates and individuals alike, I think it is, it's not possible for a bank like the RBA to commit to leaving rates unchanged for the next three years. I mean, three years is an extremely long time from here.
0: Uh, it's very interesting because you know what at what point do they break their promise in, in, in terms of keeping rates low, and at what inflation do they you know because I've talked about as long as they're targeting the band and it can be outside the band for a number of years, and we've seen it being outside the band, I think six, seven, eight years now, lower than the target band. so to my thinking, they're happy to see it above the band too uh, for a sustained period, but at what point do you think they trigger or or they they actually relent and increase
1: um, rates at the short end? That is an absolutely uh, critical question. <laughs> I I think I, I think rather than it being completely data driven, and uh, look, I agree with you. I think you know. The 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 RBA wants a period of above target inflation. Arguably, it's playing catch up for, like you say, the seven eight years of underperformance. Um, but a couple of points I would make on that. Firstly, I think the definition of inflation for most central banks is, and if not all central banks, is too narrow today to really be a guide for where there are sources of instability or sources of pressure in an economy. So. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the RBA even overtly goes down um, the road of trimming various things off inflation to get to its trimmed mean. So, you know, the, the cynic in me says, hey, I could make inflation zero if you took out everything that was going up. But I mean, that's that that's sort of not the point. Right. So I think you, you I think once you get to a, uh, you know, two to four quarters above target inflation, I think that becomes very untenable for for the bank to do that. But, you know, there is less of a chance of that happening, I think, than there is the market making the moves for the central bank. And we've actually already seen that. So if you look at the shape of the yield curve, we know the RBA has pinned down two to three year bond yields around that 10 basis point target. So you get this quite hilarious, Um, shape of the yield curve when you look at it, which is a straight line out to three years of 10 basis points, and then you rock it up higher, um, up towards, you know, four and five year yields. And very, very simplistically, I've just been drawing a line. That's, That's about as technical as my technical analysis gets. I've just been drawing a line from cash through to five years and saying, well, look, that's what the market is telling you. Um, implicitly it it expects from the path of policy rates and you can do that with spot rates and you can do it with forward rates, but the, the results are the same, which is, you know, you've got this artificial triangle shape. Really, um, of of uh, suppressed yields, which doesn't reflect the market's expectation for where policy rates are going to go. So I've just been keeping my eye on the almost like the <clears throat> the pinned two and three year rate to five year rates, and you can use that to build a forward curve for where the market expects policy rates to go. Now, we st- uh, you know I, I'm 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 a believer in long term debt. Debt deflation dynamics because the world is very levered and central banks are very levered. there's a huge amount of debt out there that, at the household and the um, and, and particularly now the sovereign level. And so that suggests that long-term inflation is not going to in my mind is not going to break out because we have demographics and debt deflation dynamics working against it but it doesn't that doesn't mean that the central bank can sit there with policy rates at zero whilst there are lots of other signals outside of that narrow CPI basket. That are telling you we have we we have more unstable conditions. You know, house prices have raced higher as we know globally, and Australia is no exception. I think that poses huge problems for for intergenerational um, uh, intergenerational affordability because if you have children like mine, then good luck with them ever living anywhere near you in in a in a in a housing asset that they actually own. So I think that's problematic. We have real assets at exceptionally elevated multiples, and I don't think that's sustainable either. And again, that has challenges for savers today, because if you're starting on your journey of saving for superannuation right now, you're buying assets at extremely elevated uh, multiples, and the forward-looking 10-year return prospects of them are pretty miserable. So um, there's lots of other challenges, I think, for central banks outside of the narrow indicators they look at. But it, it it would surprise me if we go... Even two years without the RBA having to both taper its asset purchases and start to shift a little on rates.
0: I certainly think the taper is going to happen uh, sooner rather than later. I'm not so sure about the rates. I think the central banks are a big, powerful uh, machine that can do exactly what it wants, really, and will support the economy as it sees as it sees fit. Um, it's interesting, though, just talking about the signals in the market, because some of the banks have actually started to increase their mortgage rates and uh, are preferring really pushing um, those wanting to borrow to the variable rates, which are much more attractive now uh, than the fixed rates. But um, I'm curious, too, about the relationship between Australian inflation and US inflation. We haven't talked a bit about this, but the um, stimulus Biden is um, projecting onto that economy in the. GDP figures they've had, um, uh, you know, uh, outstanding, you know, is there a relationship, do you think, between Australian and US infl- in inflation? I mean, they're not out, they're no longer our biggest trading partner, but um, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, statistically inflation is 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 more of a global phenomenon now than it was historically. I mean, we've got much more heavily integrated global supply chains um now obviously covid put the brakes on that a little bit because shipping and 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 just movement of both human and physical capital was constrained during uh, during the covid lockdowns but that will you know give it another year or so and they'll be freed up and largely back to normal you know even even in australia with its chronically underperforming um vaccination rollouts we will get we'll get there probably uh probably next year. So you will have, you know, much much freer movement of of human and physical capital back again. And, and because supply chains are quite integrated globally, you it's very hard to isolate inflationary pressures from the biggest economy in the world and not expect them to filter out into other economies. Um, you know, whether it's things like, you know, just, just the bid for talented human capital, or you know, uh, uh, demand for you know, demand for commodities, or or uh, you know, demand for finished goods. I think there is a reasonable degree of interconnectedness with global inflation. Now, you'll, you certainly have local factors that can can override that. I mean, we all remember the um, example of bananas post post the uh, cyclone, <laughs> which which you know which, which created this this temporary massive bulge in local inflation. But I think it, you, you know you can't escape more integrated inflation cycles globally. And I think particularly when they get pronounced, it's very difficult for one economy to to, you know, avoid the impact of a very big other economy in in that. So, you know, we saw it in the 70s. um, That was definitely a global phenomenon then. So um, I don't think Australia will be entirely isolated from that. Um, But like I said, I think the type of inflation risks that I see are not they're not 70s like inflation risk. They're not explosive inflation risks. It's just that we've become conditioned, particularly a post GFC world the last 15 years or so, we've become conditioned to these exceptionally low levels of inflation. Generally, you know, variance around the mean has been very limited. Uh, and, and because rates are so exceptionally low, you actually don't need a very large change in inflation to have a big impact uh, on on real rates because, you you know, your nominal rates are so low that it doesn't give you much of a cushion to for inflation itself to be the bigger driver of rates rather than, you know, a, a, a large nominal rate which cushions the influence on real rates that inflation can impart. So uh, we're just a bit more sensitised to it now.
0: So do you have any thoughts on where investors should look if they're wanting to take out inflation protection? And, you know, is it too expensive now? Uh, Would you just look to floating rate um, investments? Do you have any, any suggestions?
1: Um, Yeah, look, I mean, I think this traditional playbook, well, it depends who you speak to. really. if you speak to an equities investor, they will say, oh, no, but equities are a real asset. They'll hedge you against inflation. And yet they're not. You know, we see when inflation breakouts are more meaningful, equities hate it as well because equities are an an inherent long duration asset. You know, if you look at tech stocks, they are a very long duration asset because their earnings are A, their earnings accelerate, um, you know, very quickly and B, the valuations of them are so high that you only need a very small change in your forward expectations of either growth or market size and that has a, a really severe effect on the um, on the NPV today of the value of that asset so equities are actually quite long duration even though they're not explicitly uh, an interest rate asset. so equities I don't think really are, are 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 a great inflation hedge. yep look floating rate assets to the extent that rates go up. Of course, you'll get a bit more income. So, yeah, you know, I, I agree with that. Obviously, if the inflation risks are severe enough and credit spreads widen as a consequence, if it's negative for risk assets, then you could, you know, the the movement in your short-term rate could be uh, essentially, you know, um, outstripped by a widening in, in in discount margins, which, you know, it, it isn't, isn't then necessarily uh, that helpful for you because you still have spread duration in floating rate assets. You may not have any interest rate duration, but you certainly have spread duration. Uh, and that can impact your mark to market and, and could still uh, give you negative uh, returns, you know, month on month or quarter on quarter. Look, inflation link bonds, as boring as they are. Well, they're not that boring, but they're, they're, you know, they might not be that sexy. But hey, they are quite literally. Uh, inflation-linked protection to to, um, the uh, the inflation rates that central banks are targeting. So the challenge right now, though, is that real yields are either negative or they're around zero, depending on where you look around the globe. So your entire return from an inflation-linked bond looking forward must, by definition, come from inflation change. You don't get any real rate return there. So in in, in fact, in some instances, there's a real cost to investing in that government bond because the real rates are negative on a buy and hold basis. So there aren't that many great options around, I'm afraid. You could take the the sure thing hedge, which is inflation-linked bonds, and say a laddered portfolio of inflation-linked bonds, um, you know, or directly invest in inflation-linked government bonds yourself, but you just have to stomach the fact that your real return right now is you know, is really it's really diminutive, um, or or you could take a slightly less accurate hedge and have some floating rate debt instruments, or if you think the inflation breakout is not going to be too severe, then equities in a less severe inflation environment, inflation environment can actually give you an uplift because they earn, you know, they will typically earn revenue that is is somewhat linked to inflation. Um, but there's so many potential variables that can dilute that impact when you get into equities. You know, what does their supply chain look like? Are they effectively having to sacrifice margin when upstream inflation pressures can't be passed through to their end consumers because they have limited pricing power? So many variables that can dilute that along the way in, in equities that um, you know, I, I I would be looking at floating rate assets, maybe some inflation-linked government bonds. Um, and uh, and then perhaps the hope that it's not a protracted, <laughs> protracted and violent inflation breakout.
0: Mm, I think fingers crossed. Absolutely, I, I've been an advocate of inflation bonds for a long time, and I sort of think they are edging to to be too expensive at this point. But um, let's continue. I know um, with your consultancy business, you've been doing some work on um, DeFi, and I'm wondering if you can just explain that and talk about how that might impact. Um, the existing players in the in the banking and finance market.
1: Yeah, certainly, it's a fascinating space. And um, you know, I, I, full disclosure, I would be very clear in saying that a year or so ago, I was not really focused on DeFi world and crypto that heavily. And and indeed, I, I remember very clearly, I had a. Uh, a a colleague, former colleague, um, lovely guy who's now based in the Middle East, who owned a Bitcoin. He owned a Bitcoin and we would often, this was back in 2016, 2017, and we we would often sort of joke about that. And um, when when crypto had that big run up in through to 2017, Bitcoin got to ten thousand dollars from memory uh, and the price action was really parabolic. And I said to this colleague, oh, look mate, really, if we look at this price action, I said, I have no idea what the long term value is of Bitcoin. But just looking at this price action, the fact that it's gone parabolic, I just don't think that's sustainable. Um, and I said, I think you should sell it. And then we had a bit of a crash after then. Uh, but 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 since then, you know, what are we now with today, like $45,000 or something and we hit we hit 60,000. 60, so look, how stupid was I back then, but I'd still maintain that the volatility of crypto makes it very, very challenging right now to say that crypto is a, a um, is a store of value. It's certainly a fantastic speculating tool, and I have no issues with people who can stomach that volatility um, I- I investing in crypto uh, because it can make you hero or zero. In the course of a week, but decentralized finance, more generally, if we put, put cryptocurrencies to one side because that's only part of the picture, decentralized finance generally, or DeFi, is this is this idea of taking um, the control of um, financial systems away from one centralized entity, say a you know a central bank or a, or a stock exchange or a single market maker, and market provider. And really dispersing that across a, a a collection of actors or nodes in a network that operates autonomously, so um, for example, if we look at uh, the blockchains that are behind you know some of the prominent cryptocurrencies like ether and uh, um, ether and Bitcoin, and even dare I say it Dogecoin. Um, but there's lots of others, you know. There's there's, there's 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 literally thousands of cryptocurrencies and tokens out there. The idea is that there is no one central counterparty that you are relying on for the security or the um, um, you know the data housing and the transactional um platform that you're that, that, that you're sitting on it is it's decentralized there's no single actor that can control the way that those networks behave they're pre-programmed you know these they, they follow um s- specified smart contracts on the way in so that they're automatically executing you know you're not relying on one counterparty deciding to process your execution or not so the tenets of, De- uh, of DeFi of defy are this idea that well you can give control back to the, the, the users, in, in, in a sense, because the users that are part of a protocol and the nodes that are involved in, in, a, in, a, in a blockchain processing those transactions, they're, they're, there are thousands of them. And so you get over this problem of one actor controlling certain aspects of a finance function. So there isn't a single bank that you're relying on, uh, whether that's a single commercial bank or a, or, a, or a single central bank. You're actually relying on a system of pre-programmed protocols to do the processing uh, for you so i think you know that in its set, in, in at its core i think that has both attractions and it has risks it has attractions in the sense that you reduce the risk of nefarious actors assuming that hacking can't be done you reduce the risk of one nefarious actor if in effect taking control of a of a market or a currency or an asset but on the other hand it also makes it quite difficult then to resolve any issues because where do you go there's no one there's no one uh, you can't call a helpline the bitcoin helpline and say oh sorry but someone seems to have stolen my bitcoin could you just go in and reverse that transaction for me well no you can't because uh, the nature of blockchain is it's immutable you know you can't change the record after it's been processed so i think there's both really interesting benefits and and other teething problems with um, with DeFi that have to be resolved but i firmly believe the technology is placed now and in fact we're seeing examples of it to replace parts of the traditional finance uh, architecture and I'll happily go into some examples of that.
0: Um, I, it's fascinating to me. I don't fully understand it. I've read a bit about it. I've listened to people talk about it. I really like the idea of it, um, the The speed of the transaction and, um, you know, that you avoid currencies and borders and, you um, you know the, i i see a lot of advantages to it but perhaps if you can give us an example or two that would be great
1: yeah i think i, I think once you start digging in once you start digging in you realize that just like if, if someone asked you to describe oh what do capital markets do you'd have to define that quite generally right because they actually do a huge amount of things and so the the use cases for uh, distributed ledger technology or blockchain and tokens tokenization the use cases are are really broad, some of them are really interesting use cases and will have value, some of them are just crazy and I can't really see why they do have value like Dogecoin, for example, I mean. yeah anyway don't get me started, but a great example locally we have There's a business called LIGON who we know and. Um, they're doing some really interesting things they were born out of one of the major banks and they started by looking at a way to create a digital alternative to a bank guarantee, a physical bank guarantee. So if you are a tenant, for example, and you go along and say, hey, I'd like to rent this floor for a year, please. And the landlord says, well, that's great. But you know, Liz, your business as exciting as it is, it's only relatively small. And so I would like a guarantee from your bank, please. And so you have to trot along to your bank and go, look, I need a bank guarantee for my landlord." And there's a there's a whole process of drafting up paper documentation that various people have to sign. Obviously, you need your involvement, you need the bank's involvement, you need the landlord's involvement. It's a tripartite um, agreement and they're they're notorious for having lots of errors in them and who's got the latest version it now needs to be changed that needs to be executed physically it needs to go back and forth with a courier many many times you take your bank guarantee and then you want to change buildings you have to go to another person it needs to be amended again so it's a bit of an admin an admin nightmare lots and lots of paperwork involved errors are you know reasonably frequent and it's a frustrating process you know you think about the carbon impact of all those couriers scuttling around taking physical pieces of paper around so the team at Ligon working with um with IBM developed a digital alternative to uh, the bank guarantee that is uh, where the the um effectively the validity of that is authenticated by its uh, recording on the blockchain and the the blockchain used happens to be IBM's Hyperledger and so what that allows you to do once you're onboarded onto the platform both as a beneficiary of a guarantee and as a as a commercial partner who is using that guarantee effectively you're all on the same system you can all look at that common record you can all make changes to it if if needs be that need to be authenticated obviously by the other people in that involved in that guarantee but you get an audit trail uh, uh, on on that ledger where you can see exactly what the current status of that bank guarantee, who's issued it, what's it for, um, you know, who's the guarantor exactly, uh, uh, you know, exactly what, all, all the things that you'd need the paper document to represent, you can see instantaneously and digitally on that record. And really the power of that business then comes from a network effect. So the more parties you have involved, both banks, both, you know, small businesses and then larger businesses who, who, are, who are requesting the guarantee, the more businesses you have involved, it then becomes a simple network effect where the value just increases as a consequence. Um, so it's using smart contracts, uh, which have to be programmed. You know, smart contracts in effect are an automated set of rules that you pre-program to make them conditional on certain things happening. They're auto-executing contracts, really. Smart contracts, and you can. You know, you can draft a smart contract to cover a huge array of commercial applications, but as long as it can be codified with certainty, then you can have a smart contract effectively running a relationship for you. So um, that's one area where, you know, bank guarantees are nice and simple, so it's a good place to start. All the major banks are on that platform in in Australia. And I think it's only a matter of time before that technology is uh, is expanded into other areas of fixed income you know you think about what you know what other contractual relationships do we have in, in capital markets well most of them are contractual relationships and so if you can codify that in smart contract form it can it can strip out a lot of cost and inefficiency you know syndicated loans abs mbs uh you know uh, um term loan b know this there's there's a uh, the land registry what a great example there i mean a typical example people use to say well what is blockchain it's sort of well you know blockchain is a little bit like if you digitize the land registry so that you could prove that you were the owner of your house by checking that reference on on blockchain by checking that block that data entry on blockchain so i think the applications are massive and um it's just a matter of time before they get pushed out into other areas of traditional traditional finance.
0: Nick, can you tell us a little bit about your business and what, what you're doing aside aside from looking at DeFi? And if you, there's anything else that you think our listeners would be interested in, um, happy to keep the conversation going.
1: Yeah, sure. So look, my, my business partner, Stephen Fang, and I have known each other for 10 years. Stephen was um, global head of restructuring at Aberdeen. Uh, he's a corporate finance lawyer. Um, very experienced. He's come through, you know, he's come through, through uh, global law for local and global law firms with a great understanding of, you know, corporate finance, M&A, restructuring, uh, you know, insolvency and so on. Uh, and, and he's a really great guy. So so we started our business really to try and speak to smaller corporations, um, startups, mid-market firms that can't afford to go to some of the larger corporate advisory shops, because, you know, understandably, they've got fixed costs to cover and they, they're they quite expensive so what we're trying to do is bring that institutional level of experience and credibility down to a part of the market that perhaps hasn't had access to that before and we, we're we both quite creative people and we really wanted to start our own business where we could drive the bus so to speak um and you know uh, uh, and really determine what our approach was to those businesses so think of us as a miniature investment bank um where we can provide advice for a whole variety of you know corporate corporate finance um issues but we're generalists you know we would not hold ourselves out to be particular industry specialists we are with with the financial and legal folk we're not here to tell you how to, how to run your business commercially but we can help you with how to fund it um you know maybe how to sell it or how to buy another one uh, or maybe to merge with a partner you know or, or or how to to raise debt or equity for it so like I say, a, a, a very miniature <laughs> investment banking function is, is, um, is how you'd think of it. Uh,
0: thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. It'd been really fascinating uh, talking to you about inflation and, and DeFi. Um, I'm, we're all watching the market and interest rates and inflation figures and data, um, like I think every day wanting to get an indication of where we're going, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how it all works out. I wouldn't personally like to bet against the central bank. Um, I think it'll, yeah, I think it'll, um, it'll hold sway. But who knows? You know, the heat. There's plenty of heat in the economy right now.
1: Yeah. No. Look, I it will be fascinating. And, and look, what I do, what I would would say is, I'd encourage your listeners to, to to try and absorb a really broad mix of um, information and to keep learning when they're looking at finance. And what what do I mean by that? I think it's tempting for folks that have been in traditional you know traditional capital markets for 20 25 years as I have to to get in a bit of an echo chamber so if you look at your social media feeds if you look at your you know your 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 contacts on LinkedIn if you look at the type of research that you absorb or or even the news channels that you choose to follow the risk is you get into an echo chamber where you're, you're by default, you're just interacting with people who are exactly the same mindset that you are and you ignore other things that are happening in the economy. So I would, so I would encourage all of the uh, you know, crusty old uh, folk like me to be open minded about things like DeFi and and blockchain and cryptocurrency. I'd also encourage them to look at areas like venture capital, private equity. You know If you're a fixed income person, the idea that you can ignore what's happening in VCPE. Uh, you know, or elsewhere. I think that is a, a complete misnomer. I think having a having an open mind and, and absorbing lots of sources of information is the way that you get a, um, a more rounded appreciation of what's happening in, in the world and what's happening in markets.
0: I absolutely completely agree and alternatives are, are certainly something I think a lot of investors haven't even begun to investigate and, you know, I was looking at the Future Fund just in the last few days, you know, they're third largest um, allocation is to alternatives. Yeah,
1: there we go. Wow.
0: Yeah, you know, that's that is the way of the future.
1: Mm, Yeah, no, agree.
0: Uh, Thanks so much, Nick. I hope you'll join us again. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Fixated, the fixed income podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to join us again next week. Still hungry for more fixed income news, views and education? then visit fixedincomenews.com.au and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to have the latest news delivered right to your inbox. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Elizabeth Moran and we'll see you next week on Fixated, the Fixed Income podcast.